that is interesting discussion. Okay. All right. I'm good though. I, I'm I'm re-energized. Getting my second win with me. Let's have a rock and roll show. Hello and welcome to Entertaining the Idea, Season 2, Episode Number 12. This is the podcast where two writers discuss the creative process from the perspectives of both generating and consuming content. I am one half of your co-hosting team, John McStravick, and I'm joined by my other half. Hey, this is Anthony Hudax. Hey, Anthony Hudax. I mean, I guess I could say you're my better half. Sure, I'll give you the compliment. There you go. There you go. After we had a lively pre-show discussion on conspiracy theories, uh, we're know. ready to get into some uh, more fun and engaging talk. Uh, <laughs> yes. I was totally engaged with the conspiracy theory talk. Oh, I was engaged too, but it was going down a rabbit hole pretty quickly. And uh, I think we're lucky that we only uh, caught ourselves at 45 minutes in. I know. Everybody at home is probably thinking we're talking like QAnon stuff. And we're really just talking about whether tech companies spy on you or not. And so I don't want people to be like, oh, great. There's QAnon people here. Let's get into it. I just wanted to kind of open up. I was just curious. uh, You seem to have a very uh, Renaissance man aura to yourself whenever we kind of get into a discussion. And I'm not sure that you are aware of it. You always seem to have some sort of background in whatever topic we kind of go over. And I mean, and you're always into so many different things from writing to comedy to designing, graphic design, sports, martial arts, YA novels, you know. How do you kind of find time to get into all this? And how do you remember all this kind of stuff? Because I'm always very impressed with you at least have a uh, iota of idea of what we discuss about, even if I just kind of bring something up. Well, thank you. I, I take that as a, as a compliment. I really appreciate that. It's either a compliment because I think you <laughs> know a lot or it's a slight that you have no better time on your hands to just read Wikipedia forever. I do. I mean, I will say a lot of my time is spent. I do scroll reddit a ton reddit is one of my addictions where anything that like pops my interest i start looking at and then if i don't understand stuff something i have this like need to kind of keep digging down and digging down and digging down so it'll be what will happen is it'll start with some stupid news story it'll basically be like i'll start with oh there's protests going on in hong kong and i'll watch a video of like protesters doing something where they're like throwing tear gas back at police. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it'll start with, then it'll be like, oh, well, how did this all start? And then I start digging back and digging back. And then all of a sudden I spiral into these holes of like, oh, well, why did Britain only lease, you know, Hong Kong for 99 years or whatever it would be? And then I just start putting all this stuff together. And that's kind of what it is. And then I also just have like a big, wide interest in things um but like stuff like design and stuff like that only came forth because i needed money and it was a job and i and i just happened to be working at an advertising place that did graphic design so i was like i need to learn this so then i started like really getting into it so like when you're doing like something like that or do you just try to learn trial by fire or are you like jumping on youtube and watching a whole bunch of tutorials or do you use one of these kind of um class companies they're like uh like the linda linkedin learning there's a couple other them like yeah or Khan academy stuff like that yeah like so would you do those kind of things like what did i mostly just do like youtube tutorials and then truest explanation is i have a very wide knowledge base but not a very deep one 
because while I, like I like to be able to hold my own in a conversation about stuff so I don't if I don't understand something I keep digging at it once I get to a certain level I just kind of stop okay like there there are people who have been doing like graphic design and design as long as I have who are much much better at it right because that's what they focus on 100% of the time and they like dig down into it this is part of what we talked about before being yeah. a multi-hyphen or like wearing many hats like you you get a very good base understanding of something and you can be pretty competent in it but that doesn't mean you have to be the expert in it because that's what other people do but you can still provide or be different though because you have multiple skills instead of just being an expert in one you have these different uh, backgrounds in a lot of like useful things though, uh, useful tools and skills. Right. And I guess design is kind of a, a bad one because I actually did that professionally for like six or seven years. So that, and continue to do it like in my job. Okay. So like I play guitar I for playing guitar for. So you're a quintessential Renaissance man for like 10 years or something like that. I'm, roughly not much better than like a first or second year guitar player because I just don't practice it all the time. I don't make it a priority. I don't do that because it also doesn't affect my life. Like I want to be able to like pick up a guitar, play a couple chords and now I can like look at something and I'm like, Oh, I can kind of play this, but it can't be anything like super complex. And I love punk music, so it doesn't have to be, but that's sort of like that, like wide, but not deep. Hey, I mean, I have similar interest like i just my thing is wikipedia i can go down a wikipedia hole like oh yeah real fast it, it takes very little for me to just start clicking through and it's kind of fun a lot of the times but then all of a sudden you're like oh shit it's an hour later and i haven't done anything except through i'm five <laughs> i'm like a kevin bacon away from uh six degrees of separation from my original topic that I checked out on Wikipedia at this point. So I'll have to check out Reddit though. Every time, next time I have something sparked to me, I'll check out Reddit, see if what, what I can find in Reddit. It is just one of those things that is like an idea launching point for me, like scrolling through our all and just being like, whatever something like, not even for like the memes and stuff, but just like what a headline will be like, I'll be like, what is that all about? But like a difference is like how much we know about sports. Like I can talk to you about sports and I have a good understanding of what's going on and I'm not completely out of it. But then when you and some of our other friends talk, you guys are talking about people who are coming out of college who haven't quite got to like, like the professional level. And you're like, Oh, I hope we draft this person. But if we can't do that, we need this or that, that. And like, if we can't draft one of those three players, at least we can keep a salary cap. And I, at that point I'm like, Listen, I still really don't understand what the salary cap parameters are and how you can push a contract down the line. Right. And you're like, all right, here's how it is. And then you like break it down for me. And then even after that, I still am like, crap, I didn't get it. And then I'll have to like go home and like look it up again. Well, and then point, it still won't it, stick it in my head. At that point, though, blind leading the blind where it's like I kind of understand some of it and I can explain it to you. But then I'm probably still getting a lot of things wrong. So, you know. But I'm taking it as gospel. Oh, yeah. And well, this is how rumors start. Exactly. That's how conspiracy theories start. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, it clearly seems that you ha are probably amazing at dinner parties, though. So kudos to you and your wide base of knowledge. Well, thanks. 
cool. Uh, that's a fun insight into how you kind of just check all these fun things out. Opener. Very good. Yeah. All right. So let's move into then follow up. Uh, this is actually from, I think, a few episodes ago. Uh, we talked about theater chains and studios owning them. And, you know, what is this, uh, that possible future? Uh, we just did. I did kind of look into it a little bit. And pretty much the what's going on is it goes back to United States versus Paramount Pictures. And the sum of it is that they ruled you can't be vertically integrated because uh, it was had monopolistic tendencies by a lot of the uh, acts that they were doing because they owned all these theaters. They were doing stuff called block booking where they would only uh, book certain movies from either their studio or other studios that they were in cooperation with. And then a few other tactics where they could have exclusive windows and then independent theater chains wouldn't get a movie for like a month later. And then they could tell them also to charge more than what they charge at their theaters. A lot of these different bad tactics. So it became a no go back in 1948 and it's still technically as in place this ruling. Now, there's a lot of gray area around there. Studios actually do own a few theaters here and there, um, uh, just a handful of them. And there was recently, though, the DOJ has talked about either uh, changing the ruling or, uh, you know, challenging the ruling again or, you know, pulling their uh, stance against it. I I don't know the actual ins and outs of that because they're saying that it's an outdated ruling. And especially with current studios and looking into all their streaming practices, is almost a de facto vertically integrated company again in distribution and exhibition just in a different form. So there's a lot of questions going on about that. Uh, but I did read one article from Film School Rejects that was saying they do believe that if they this was rescinded, this ruling, it would a lot of it would just go back. Disney would buy up a whole bunch of theaters. They'd book them out with most of their movies, especially their big blockbusters. They'd squeeze independence. I don't know how much I agree with all that, but that's what a lot of people do think it would go back to a lot of the old ways. I'm not necessarily in complete agreement with that. I don't I don't think it actually would. And I think when you look at like 1948, you'd have to see that you don't even have like a television in every house. And even television isn't really like broadcasting movies when it first starts. So there is no other distribution for a place other than a theater. And just like you said, when you have you can stream you can you can be on cable you can you know sell pay-per-view you can do whatever you can like make an app and shoot it right to somebody's phone if you want to if a if a place wanted to distribute movies that way it could definitely do it so i have a feeling with stuff like that i think there's probably going to be a really good argument from the department of justice or that someone could make to the department of justice to say that idea of it being a monopoly um theaters being the monopoly is going to go away i think what actually kind of needs to be looked at now is like you're saying with the vertical integration now has it gotten too much so I think they are vertically integrated for all intents and purposes by releasing their own streaming service because right before all of this, they were selling their content either, you know, exclusive or non-exclusive to different providers that weren't themselves. So to Netflix, they had syndication rights with different cable networks before that. Um, but you could sell them to Netflix. You could sell them to Hulu. You could sell them to HBO. There were separate providers that were disassociated from they're producing the content and who is showing the content. Uh, now that they own these, also the places that can show the content, that's where 
it feels like we're going back that way anyway. So that's why I am actually wouldn't think it's a bad thing to pull this back. Also, just the way theaters are, I think they are struggling and the competition is in between theaters themselves, but also all these other forms of, uh, you know, entertainment content that's out there. And you just mentioned that with the phones and the, the TV apps and all that kind of stuff. It's much more easier to anybody get in this game. So it's still already kind of diversified in that sense. And I'm not saying that in the future stuff can't get consolidated. It's already consolidating in certain ways, but you know, I think that's a bridge to cross at that time. Yeah. But it does, you know, like if Netflix doesn't want to have you on their service, like that is costing you millions of viewers. But I guess in the legal sense, they're not preventing you from getting your, stuff out there like when you're talking about like if you only had that's a great point i wasn't even actually necessarily thinking of it that way that's actually a a great point yeah like if you had a paramount theater in your town and the next warner brothers theater isn't like for 150 miles well you're essentially a captive audience to paramount like that's and i think that's a little bit the way netflix is but in the same way there are so many other avenues that it's not a fair comparison anymore. You know what I mean? First off, in that scenario, it sounds like that's a more rural kind of setting where there only be one theater that is owned by one studio. That doesn't seem to be financial sense for that studio necessarily to do that or the other ones not to have a presence there. And even in a more dense place where there's multiple theaters, if you do think about this, if, if it was like, okay, now Paramount owned their company, owned their theater, if Paramount owned their theater and Warner's owned their theater and Disney owned their theater and say they're kind of like gas stations and there's one on each corner, you're, you're going to have situations where like it was, if it was just a Disney and they were releasing the new Marvel movie, everybody's going to be going to that theater that weekend and the other two are not going to be that busy. I don't think they want a scenario where that's the case. They still want you to be able to go to the theater and make your choice of where you want to go. I, you know, does that make sense to you? It it does, because then, because then, Warner Brothers Theater itself would be dead. Where maybe if like you go to the theater, Avengers is sold out, you can then go see a different movie. As opposed to, I know they're across the street. It kind of falls apart a little bit, but I think it. I don't know if it still has the spirit of what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, and I I do get what you're trying to get at, and I think I think that is a thing that. You know, nobody wants nobody wants an empty theater, and that's you know maybe we'll get back to the days of giveaways where it'd be like, yeah, if you go see the latest you know Sony animation at our Sony theater, you're gonna get like a free plush doll with like to all your kids for this, and it could (laughs) right exactly like the the giveaways. This is you know crazy times we're living in right now, and recently. Uh, Disney actually announced that they are going to put uh, Disney's Milan as a premium VOD on Disney Plus. So you pay 30 bucks to watch Milan in your home. They are going to still roll it out to theaters internationally who have a better handle on theaters opening up. But it's just an interesting, uh, it's the next step. Trolls did this earlier in the year. Now Milan's doing it with Disney. And it's a, it's a $200 million plus budget movie. Plus then all of the advertising money that you spend on top of it. So like in order to make that money back, they have to clear at least like $400 million, which is why box office is still remains prominent for these huge blockbuster, big budget movies, because the amount of you pretty much the rule of general rule of thumb, you know, I'm sure there's 
nuance to it. You have to double what you spend both budget on the production and your uh, advertising and publicity uh, uh, costs, which can run almost up to yeah. half or if maybe sometimes depending on the budget of the film, the same amount as the film. So anyway, you have to double that. So if like your film costs $300 million to make with advertising plus production, you have to make around $600 million to kind of make some money or even just break even and then everything else is profit. So there's a lot of, a lot at stake here. And to, and to make that. Well, none of it ever makes any profit, right? Cause that's the Hollywood accounting. So we got to make sure nothing ever makes a profit, but it makes money. <laughs> well, yes. In the long terms, it's that library, man. You got to build up that library though. Uh, but anyway, Avengers made money. Avengers made some money. And but Avengers wouldn't yes. make money if it went premium VOD. It doesn't matter. You just can't. I just don't think that it's it's different, and it just is. And it's still one. It's one of those things that still is keeping theaters like humming because part of the problem is if you do look at the numbers, Disney is like killing it, and they got all this money, and there's there's making so much money, and the other ones are doing okay. But it's so concentrated on a certain amount of movies that are making this money. All the small stuff isn't really cutting it. It's really just these blow out, you know, 700 million to $1 billion plus, you know, returns that are actually carrying the box office right now. Right. And that, I mean, that whole tentpole picture idea that you're going to have one or two movies a year that are going to essentially float your studio for the whole time um, or be the, the marquees is kind of turned into a really weird thing where, you know, uh, stuff like Disney, they're going to get, you know, two or three of those a year where you're going to have like massive, massive pictures. And I think as we look at this from the studio point of view of whether like a studio will let um, like a theater be dark because they just don't have anything playing that weekend versus right. like trying to get like at least one screen playing Avengers. I think what you talked about earlier really comes into stark relief about where do the independent movies go? Like with a Netflix or Hulu that are buying these and giving them a place to show smaller scope films, that's one thing. But like the theatrical experience, if you kill all these independent movie theaters, there really isn't that indie scene anymore. And it's interesting that we are in an era now that isn't so overrun with indie movies because we're literally walking around in our pockets. Most people have something that can shoot 1080p. That can that is a has the ability to get blown up to a size that is able to be shown. Like that's not crazy. That we should be, like, in this flux of independent films, and we're not seeing that. We are in an... Yeah, and I, I find that interesting, too. And this, I mean, this gets off into a bit of a tangent, but it, it has just to do with the dichotomy of between streamers and traditional theatrical distributors, where... I thought for a while the best play was that Netflix should take on all these mid-range type of movies that typically were pretty big business for studios. I mean, the 90s, I mean, that was like the bread and butter was continually pumping out like these middle-range thrillers or action movies or interesting dramas that really were, each one was different and there's no franchises or anything like that behind it. It was just very interesting character-driven type stories. 
Um, those started to fade away in the mid aughts as the French, the trilogies came around all that. Obviously then they're just almost feel like they're completely gone from theaters. They're still there, but they just don't get the uh, publicity they used to. And, and the, uh, the advertising budget, it seemed like for a little bit, Netflix was starting to pull those in because they didn't have anything else to really show far movies go. But then now even on Netflix, they're pushing into this big budget tentpole type of genre i mean they just talked they just announced this giant ryan gosling spy thriller action temple uh series that they're going to start producing and a lot of questions beyond it but they're going to spend like 200 million dollars on the first movie alone which is crazy for something that's going to be showing up on my tv or you could play on your phone i have other issues and questions about that as far as experience goes and we talked about it sometimes uh we talked about that a little bit in the past but I just find it interesting that even Netflix is pushing past that mid-range type of movie. And it is a good question of like, where do they go? And that would be the one worry, like these articles are talking about that even these independents then will get squeezed because the only way they'll make money, I guess, is if they show the big budget ones. But then again, then they're at the behest of these giant corporations. My question is, do you think there would be a uh, a market for independent theaters to show these mid-range type of movies in cities and in rural areas? I that's the thing that I don't know. I don't know that people are necessarily I mean, I think people are always interested in it. I I know people talk about genres dying all the time, but I think a genre only goes into remission and then it it like springs back to life. Like I remember the western genre, quote unquote being dead until Unforgiven and then all of a sudden it was you can draw a straight line from Unforgiven to Deadwood. Yeah, to Tombstone, to Deadwood being on HBO and yeah. being like this critical darling. And I think it's just, it takes a little bit to get, you know, reborn and re-looked at and, and done in a different way. Well, you remember even in the uh, mid to late 90s, it was the teen horror flick. Remember, that was dead from like the 80s. And then all of a sudden, Scream comes along and then you just have that go for like a good decade. That's faded away. But now I, I agree, like these genres do have a way of kind of coming around. I mean, and right now it is just kind of like the comic book genre era. I do think at some point that will fade. Like there will just be an exhaustion of it. It's It's gone much longer than I think anybody expected it to. And that's kudos to them. I do yes. think the studios are a really a well-oiled machine and are just giving the people what they want. So far, they're not exhausted. But I think it's also part of it is nothing else new has come around. And I think it is just one of those things. Sometimes a studio has to take a gamble on something different. It They put it out there and it hits big because it is different. And then it shifts everything. And that that's a lot of the times what it is, too, is just somebody taking a chance and putting something different out there. So that could just be a big part of the independent film uh, circuit right now. Somebody just has to take a chance on something interesting and different. And that could then shift everybody's perception of what their tastes are for that, whenever that is. And it's really hard to imagine people going out to a theater to see like a mid-range drama anymore. Like I just, you have so much stuff that's going on, you know, just in the television space that's. I, I was literally just going to say that I think the television has also sucked a lot of that air out of that space for films. But I also think that there is not to get too far off topic, but I also think that there's a bit of a brain drain where you don't have the people doing as much prestige screenwriting now as were before. Like you don't have as many of those young voices coming up because 
I think they're getting pulled into television and you want to be able to be working on a prestige television show more than being like, oh, you know, I'm the screenwriter for, you know, I'm kidding. I was trying to think of like a mid range drama and I couldn't even like come up with one. Uh, who did uh, the Uncut Gems? Is it is Zadafi Brothers? Yeah, like Uncut Gems. Like that just. But that's the type of film, if it didn't have Sandler in it, though, it probably wouldn't get any play. I mean, that's the reason that movie most likely got made. I mean, they have a background, too. They've already, they did that Good Times, which I actually haven't seen, but I heard sure. very good things about it. But again, that had. Um, uh, Patterson in it uh, was is in that one. So again, it's all about for movies. You still, if you in order to make like a mid range movie, you typically have to have a star attached, right? And that movie is really interesting because first of all, it's really good, but it is such a seventies New York movie that, like, as I was watching that one, I just kind of, I think that was on Netflix that I just sort of like picked up and started watching, it and I was like, whoa, this is really interesting and kind of dark but it was fun you know and yeah but it's but it's just an example i agree with you and that's a very good point that tv really has sucked up i think a lot of that mid-range drama space from features yeah that we used to see uh so we'll see maybe like i said hopefully a studio will take a chance on something a little different maybe and they'll break this uh this trend right now you know i i'm not against it i mean i try to live in the moment as well and not get too down on how things are, but I do like a different variety of voices and uh, points of view. And I'm sure it'll come up. And I think that's just the main thing right now is like, there has to be a budding independent scene kind of hanging out under the surface that, because you can make a full movie, you can make a full short and distribute it yourself. You don't, there's no gatekeepers anymore. There's only like your own publicity and to be able to do what you want it is it's just finding a way to get mind share is like that's the hard part which is what they do have built in i mean that is one of the biggest leverage levers they have as being a big exhibitor distributor corporation is that's the main thing it's the movie can be a great movie if you don't have people knowing about it it's hard that's that's the whole game really so all right so that is our follow-up segment you can check out we'll have some links in the show notes that you can read up more on the whole united states first paramount pictures and uh a few different sites the their take on if this is going to be happening or not and what could be the near or midterm future for theaters all right, Tony, we'll appreciate the insight on that. So this episode, we're just going to do something a little different. I think we're mostly just going to be talking about what we're watching. I don't know about you, but I've been watching a lot, a lot of things, both TV and movies on all of the beautiful streaming services. Tony has a couple of things as well. It's the best. It's the best. You just plow through these things. That that queue just gets smaller and smaller every day and then just gets filled back up by recommendations. I'm loving this. It's never ending. So, you know, that's the beauty of the streaming wars right now. We just have all these different outlets with all these different shows, all kinds, all genres, you know. So it's a great time to be living. And if there's ever a time in life that we needed to be quarantined, this is the moment in time. We're just going to get into that. So, Tony, let me know what you've been watching. All right. Uh, Well, I'll tell you the two things I've been watching. I want to know if you've been watching either of them. Um, I've been watching Search Party on HBO Max, so I checked that out. I haven't seen that one yet, but I know what you're talking about, and it looks great, and I've heard nothing but great things, and it's one of those shows I feel like I'm surprised it gets made, 
and then it somehow squeaks by and sticks around because I guess a critical acclaim, but it still doesn't seem to have like a huge following, but it has a cult following. So it feels like one of those type of shows. Yeah. And then the other one I've been watching was I watched the finally watched Last Dance about the Chicago oh, Bulls. Great. Have you seen that one yet? Yes. I'm in the middle. Okay. I'm, I'm almost towards it. I'm, I'm past the middle. Great. Oh, okay. Then I don't want to talk too much about that. So I will talk about, then I'm going to talk about uh, Search Party because I don't want to spoil anything for Last Dance. By the way, uh, Michael Jordan wins in the end. Uh, Damn it, Tony. (laughs) Damn it. Uh, I've been staying off my phone. I'm so tempted to check Wikipedia on what happened. And I've been staying off. I've been so disciplined. And you just ruined it for me. I gotta go see what the Reddits say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, I'm sure there's probably like several subreddits dedicated to both the Chicago Bulls and um, Last Dance. Okay, so tell me about Search Party though. Search Party is an amazingly weird show, and it starts with the premise that there are these four Brooklyn millennial hipster types, and the main character Dory, played by. Um, Aaliyah Shawkat doesn't really have anything going on with her life and she decides that like essentially to just have some drama she's going to find this missing friend of theirs and she draws her other friends into this the three other friends into this searching for the Chantel I was thinking the thing was going to go one way the entire time it got to the end of the first season and I pretty much just watched the last 20 minutes of the end of the first season with my mouth just wide open. It was such a satisfying ending to the first season that I was just blown away. It's not a perfect piece of television. However, Aaliyah Shawgat is amazing if this doesn't put her on so many people's radars i would be surprised like she has such an incredible range in this she goes from this really downtrodden person she has some heartbreaking moments she has some truly scary moments where she seems very unhinged to like just really funny and sweet and charming moments like she really does it's an ensemble piece it's definitely these four characters she definitely is leading the pack though and now she was that's her she was from arrested development right arrested yeah she was maybe from arrested development um and then one of my friends had told me to check out the last girl uh or the last girls which is a movie that she did which is kind of a riff on the teen horror genre that's a comedy but it's got like adam uh divine in it and uh mira ackerman and a couple other like pretty good comic actors in there so thoroughly blown away by this it's really fun to find a show like that especially when you 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 know somebody but you don't know them like she only in arrested development and then you're like yeah i'll check this out but then when you discover a gem like that something that is just genuinely really grabs you but even though it's like a comedy or dark comedy right it's kind of like a black comedy. it's very very dark comedy it's um that's what's so but that's what's so interesting about it because that's such not something that most of the times networks want to put on the air and i i love when you get 
a little risk like that. The show overall is like very, very entertaining. It takes so many twists that I don't even really want to talk about it. Like the plot lines too much of it, but there's a couple of times that I was literally afraid of where they were going and they went to that place that I was afraid. I was like, don't, no, no, this can't be it. This can't be what's happening. No, no. And then it was. And I was like, like I could just feel my whole body tense as I was like watching it. So when you say you were afraid that they were going in a certain directions, afraid because you were afraid they were going to like going down a cliched way and spoil it, or you were afraid because for the characters in your, one of those type of feelings where you're, I can't handle the stress right now of them doing what they're doing. I've got to say this without, I don't want to spoil any of this at all. I was afraid for the characters is the best way of putting it. You see the way that it could play out in the worst possible way. But then there's the part of you that's like, but it's a television show. And if you do this, that's going to like throw everything on this weird trajectory. So you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. You, okay. And they did it. And that's sort of like the way I felt for a couple like real crucial moments of it. Where I was like, no, 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 no. Oh, it's happening. Because it's also, it's also very funny. Like there is some very humorous moments in it. I just can't say enough about it. Well, you got me hooked because that is a show that I've been, I've eyed up. Well, do it quickly. Because season four is going to be coming out on HBO Max. I'm not sure exactly when. Season one and two were done for TBS. Season three was done for HBO Max. Season four was already shot and in post-production before COVID. So there, I was reading an interview with some of the show creators, and they were saying that as far as they know, this, this is coming out soon. So... There's two other actors that I wanted to uh, mention. Uh, Meredith Hanger, who um, is, uh, if you watched Palm Springs recently, she was Annie uh, Sandberg's girlfriend at the beginning, Misty. Um, She's in it. She does a great job playing a character named Portia. Um, they, They don't do a lot with her through the first season, but by... The end of the third season, like they've really just driven her in such a great direction. I say I, I love that stuff too. When when you really have like a B type of character, part of like the ensemble group, but then the show goes on and they actually do give them more depth and complexity. I I love that kind of stuff, and that was part of one of my things I loved about Mad Men is how they continually gave sub characters more to play with as seasons went on like that kind of stuff is one of my favorite things in shows that they decide to move up and bump up and give more uh more content and material to those the smaller roles that typically in a way shows used to be made would never get more than just their sidekick bits yeah no it was she's very very good and it does they allow that to kind of like bubble up and like become an organic thing that you just sort of like follow along with and then the other one is um john early who plays elliot goss and he does a great job they give him a lot more to do in the course of it so his storyline is 
just so bonkers that you're like his character was one of the times that I was just like, no, you're not going to do that. And you did it. And I just so good. Um, but the, those were also worth a mention of just it's standing out as just really good performers and really bringing a very unique character to life in such a, a fun way. But well, you got me super excited. That That is like everything in a show that I love. Like everything that you're kind of talking about and hitting on is the things that I love discovering in a show. So I'm going to bump this up my list for sure. So great segue by you talking about Palm Springs. Just saw it, loved it, thought it was great. Have you seen it? I have. I have. Because we talked about this last episode where you were like, I got it. We were talking about Groundhog Days and uh, then we brought up Palm Springs. So that was top of mind. And I just recently watched that. That was it, it was you know what it was. It was just a nice, charming, good movie, you know, and talk about those middle of the road type of smaller type movies that typically would have been like back in the day, like the type of movie you would go to the theater to see on purpose. Like, and this is, was originally supposed to be released in theaters, obviously because of the pandemic. This is one of those movies that moved to streaming, which in my mind does make sense. Like these smaller mid range movies, if they can't get a theatrical run, let yeah, let's just move them to streaming. It does make sense either way here nor there got to watch it at home. It was great. I, I really enjoyed it. It was just very well paced. The tone was just spot on when it was one of those real delicate tones. I thought to play like in a comedy, like between this, sort of existential threat ideas that they're playing with and just the yes. pure comedy and, and Andy Samberg and what he does. I just thought it was great. And everybody was great. The performances just hit it spot on and they had some just random jokes in there that were fun and, and they just did a really good job. Yeah, no, I 100% uh, like loved that movie in a way that, I was afraid that what was going to happen, like once you get the conceit um, that, I mean, it's not a spoiler because it's in the trailers, that it's um, basically Groundhog Day. There's this sense that it could at any moment turn into just sort of a rehashing of what happened in Groundhog Day. When you get Andy Samberg and Kristen Melody together, and she does such an amazing job of being able to be very funny in one moment and then like completely heartbreaking in the next. And Andy Samberg always does such an amazing job yeah. being the schlub with a lot of heart, you know? And I feel like that's a character that, you know, he does really well and Seth Rogen does really well and you have a couple people who are really able to make that feel fresh, even though it's sort of a trope at this point, you know, like the lovable loser type of guy, you know, but still with a, a, you know, and they play it differently. Not, you know, that Andy Samberg and Seth Rogen are doing the same type of characters, but they both have that same energy to them. And yeah, well, that's what is great about it though, is because all stories are kind of stories have been told in the past. It's just retelling them with a slightly different angle to them or different way of telling it. And that's, that's exactly what this movie is, but they do it so great though. They, they just nail it all. 
they hang a lan- lantern on a lot of things that they need to just hang a lantern on. And then you just move on like, which is, which is really smart, but they do it. They don't do it for everything. They just, what they needed to do, they call it out and then they move on. And then it allows you to just be in the story. And I, I thought honestly, the way the movie started was brilliant. And I know slight spoiler alert here. Just having him already in there rather than us going through this whole process to like the Bill Murray process of how Groundhog Day was to learning this. I, I instantly realized what they were doing and I was like, that is brilliant. I'm like in, I'm hooked. It's a great way of just jumping in while also easing you in at the same time with how the different, the two POVs they use for those characters. And they were obviously at different points of view. I just thought that was brilliant. And it was funny too, because you're like, what's going on? And then he's just being his eccentric self because he's been through this a thousand times already. It was just great. I, I just thought it was a very clever way of just getting us right into this. And mo- again, moving past the trope and just acknowledging it right off the bat. Adding an air of mystery and confusion right off the bat with um, the introduction of the J.K. Simmons character, um, which I don't even kind of want to like say his name. Yeah, with his introduction, you're almost immediately in this like, oh my gosh, like what is actually happening? And then the resolution that they come up with at the end actually felt very organic, very natural, very... It, it just fit. Everything fit well. And I, this is what I liked about the movie the most. And yeah, I don't write a lot of comedies, but I'm trying to more. And I, this is the type of comedy that I really love and I would want to write is because it's funny, it's engaging, it has a, just an easy premise, but also an interesting premise. But there's a lot of heart to it. And it actually has a theme and a message that it's building towards at the end where... It's not just all for jokes. There, there is something that they they get in there, and you know exactly what they're focusing on. And I just really appreciate that. And I like comedy with a message. Yeah, and I think some of the places that they actually went with the tropes to darker places than you would expect them to go made it very funny, and it was. It, it was very fun in a lot of ways in in that because you're like, oh, well, yeah, I get that. And it's like, oh, and they just went two steps way over that line. OK, that's fine. Yeah, they definitely went places that I wasn't expecting to. And like, I didn't know how they were going to get to the end. You figured they were going to get to some end that you did under, you know, you pretty much guessed was going to happen. But how they were getting there and wh- the stories they were telling to get there was was different. And that was what was great about it. So. Go check out Palm Springs for sure. Uh, have you seen the Gentleman's Club yet? No. What one's that? Oh, that's the Matthew McConaughey. That is the Guy Ritchie, Matthew McConaughey, Hugh Grant's in it, and Colin Farrell is in it. It's great. It's it's so good. Oh, really? Oh, it's fantastic. I saw ads for it, and I saw po- I the poster was up right outside of the production office that I was working at, and I kept like looking at it, and I was like okay, is that two Matthew McConaughey's? And then that was about the most I thought about it. <laughs> it Go watch it. It's so good. It's classic Guy Ritchie. Like, he really went back to his roots with this movie. Okay. And it just hits all of the classic marks of a Guy Ritchie movie in, a really, in the best way possible. Uh, it's just fun. 
and it keeps you counter guessing throughout the whole movie and it's got all of his wit and his humor in it and it's just really well done and i love the ending i absolutely love the ending it's so great colin farrell has a pretty small role in the movie but he shines in every scene that he's in though it's just he's great it's just Colin Farrell, really, when he wants to have fun, he really can just nail his role. Charlie Hunter, which I I absolutely love. He's a fantastic, phenomenal actor that I think is kind of very undervalued in the overall uh, uh, landscape. Yeah, I think it's because he ended up, I mean, he was spent so long on Sons of Anarchy, which was, I always refer to those as kind of like male soap operas. Like, it's such a heightened drama to it, and it's a very specific way of playing something. And then you, you know, have him doing, you know, Lost City of Z and uh, Papillon remake. Which was, that that was one of my favorite movies of his. Lost City of Z was amazing. And he was just fantastic in that movie. He's good. But to go back to Colin Farrell, yeah, when he, like, let is allowed to be let loose, like, in Horrible Bosses, like, he finds a different take on things that I think is a lot of fun. And you talk about like comic timing a lot. I, I just think that he has such a innate timing. I think he does too. Yeah. And it, but it's not just like the what he has to say. It's also his his tones and his looks, how he reacts within a scene as well. It's not just like hitting a line at the right time. It's it's the whole package of how he is within the scene. He is that character. He is reacting to what's happening. He has one of the best. He has he does really well with facial reactions, and if you ever watch in Bruges, the amount of times that he can get a laugh based on him just like raising his eyebrows at the right time, or like the like kind of like the half like eyebrow like turn that he does. I'm thinking especially in the moment when um, he's outside the church in in Bruges. And the American couple comes up and he like warns them about going up the stairs because they're very narrow and they're very fat. And as they're like yelling at him, he's very much like his reactions are so funny because you see him wanting to be polite, but also say this is really obvious to everybody. Right. We're not having this discussion for real. Right. And he's and he's doing it, with, but all of it is in his eyes and his like facial expressions. He does a very he's very expressive in that way. So yeah, well, you'll know when he has his best expressions movie when he's he's talking about the pig. So just we can talk about that in a follow up session another time. Okay, uh, whenever you get a chance to watch it. So yes, go watch. Is it streaming anywhere? Where is that? Do I got to buy that? I think you might have to rent it. I I rented it on iTunes. Okay. Uh, I did check out Greyhound. That was the Tom Hanks movie on Apple Plus. Uh, it was good. It was definitely one of those movies that deserved to be in theaters. Uh, it, I think it did lose a bit of what its intention is by being on a smaller screen. And, and it's one of those very specific type of movies, like because it's a war movie, but it's a ver- about one specific battle and just the actual grinding it out part. You know, it's it's the process type of movie where they're showing you what they actually had to do rather than a whole lot of internal conflict between different people it's this you know external conflict and them just getting through it it was more of the the visual and the whole cinematic experience i think is what was again the visuals and like what they do to show you all these battles is is what was supposed to be come through in the and it, it it's just it does get muted a bit on television so 
Yeah, I can imagine. War movies, I feel like so many like of those big movies have to just be seen in the theaters. Like, you can't, there's no way unless you have an entire wall that's a screen with the, like, super surround sound. Yeah, like, your Dolby Atmos in your home theater. It's not going to quite... Uh... Right, with, like, a rumble strip under everything so that he, like... Yeah. <laughs> you just aren't going to get that theatrical experience. It was really solidified for me the first time I ever watched Saving Private Ryan in the movie theater and then realizing, like... Which I think really changed the way they were doing war movies. And then from then on, any of those big like action scene movies, like it's so much better. Like it's like watching a completely different movie, watching it in the theater versus watching it at home. So Yeah, and I mean like we have speakers hooked up to our TV, but it's just like 2.1. It's not a 5.1 or 7.1 surround sound. of, And they're just above average. They're just average speakers. But... Like, I remember what you're talking about, Saving Private Ryan, in that opening battle sequence. I remember you could, in the theater, hear bullets coming from different places, like zipping past you and stuff like that. And it was just the whole sound design was specifically made for the theatrical experience. And I believe this movie was the same way. And even in a interview he gave with, like, The Guardian, it, it only came through in print, but it sounded like he was being snarky that he had to, they had to sell it off to Apple and he was disappointed. I get it. I, it makes sense to me to be disappointed. You put all that passion into it and all that hard work. And it was a, it was a passion project to his and to not have it where you expected it to be shown. I, I do think that there is a difference. And again, it goes back to all this discussion between theater and home and streaming and all that. Uh, but it was good. It was good nonetheless. And it was interesting to be able to see. Uh, so if you have a chance, I definitely want to see it. Definitely want to see that. Two more. This one's going to be a bigger discussion, I think, in the future. But I just finished the Watchmen series, the the television series. Have you seen it yet? I, okay, I started the Watchmen series and I watched like two episodes and then got busy watching other things and I haven't gotten back to it. So I do. Now we're at the end of season two now. No, there's only been one season. One season. Okay, so this is the end of you've got to the end of season one. And it's debatable, I think, right now. Nobody knows if there's going to be a season two. I think so far it was just seen as sort of a quasi-limited run with a possibility to go more if Lindelof wants to go more. That's pretty much one of the... Does it make sense to do a season two? In your opinion... I would say I want to say yes. It, like they definitely. I feel like the way he sets all this stuff up, there's no actual necessarily cliffhangers that allow for an easy jumping-off point. It would be again a more reinvention going into a second season and deciding who they wanted to follow, kind of thing. I think they can do it. it the whole the whole series was very interesting because I we had the discussion on a previous episode where I. Wanted, I started watching it and then I decided to read the comic because I wanted to actually read the original comic because I've seen the movie. I really like the movie. I've just rewatched the movie right before I watched the series again. Based off the comic, not the movie, even though the movie's pretty close, but it all there's small details that it comes from the comic. It's interesting. It, it didn't go places I thought it was going to go. And, you know, maybe I would have preferred other ways for it to go. But overall, it's really good. It's interesting. It's different. Uh, I love this. It's just, again, one of those shows that's taking a chance with something and really trying something different. And they did a pretty good job with it uh, overall. You can quibble over definitely things. And maybe we can get into that uh, discussion later on when you get to catch up on it. Because I'm really curious of what you think about it, being such a fan of the comic and having, you know, we had that discussion the other week. 
And I just want to see what you think about the show and how it riffs off of the legacy of right. the comic and tries to also reinvent it for modern times and bring in other aspects that weren't in the comic. It has this the whole aspect of race relations with and the uh, the Tulsa massacre, you know, so it, that part of stuff I find super interesting when you weave historical fact in with like fiction and make it this sort of quasi historical fiction. I find that kind of stuff just super, super cool and super fascinating to do. And, and it, that part of it is one of the most interesting aspects of the show. I think the parts where then they get back more into the comic book stuff is less uh, interesting to me, but it still uh, was good overall. So we'll, we'll have a further discussion on that uh, in the near future. Once you get a chance to catch up on it. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, I do. I do actually really want to watch it. The burning of black wall street. I, really think it's cool that Watchmen has brought that to the forefront again and I think a lot of people didn't know about that but Tony did Anthony knew about it he did you read about that one on Reddit did you read about that one on Reddit I knew <laughs> no we just joke we just joke <laughs> no I didn't I learned about that during when I was reading up on the Brown versus the Board of Education and like there's a there's a long that that is a very linear rabbit hole that you can go down we'll catch up on that i I have uh other idea topics to talk about the watchman and adaptations i think there's a whole bigger discussion that you and i and i can have about that uh again because since this was a quasi adaptation it's really Mm -hmm. interesting uh but let's move into the thing i think we both have seen recently and i'm still finishing it but i have like two episodes left and you were finished it uh that is the last dance the docu-series following the 1997-1998 Chicago Bulls team. I have to say, I devoured this in like a day. Now, you have to understand, not that I am unique in in any way, but Michael Jordan was one of my favorite players growing up. And he hit right at the time when he had uh, won the three championships when I was in high school. Um, or in or the first three championships when I was in middle school going into high school and then the last three when I was graduating. In watching this documentary, how much do you want to like never trash talk Michael Jordan? Like is that's like the the theme of the documentary is like never trash talk Michael Jordan because as soon as you do, he does something amazing. <laughs> Well, and I'll, I'm up to episode seven, and it to me was the best episode so far that I've seen, but but like by a mile. And that's the episode where they, after his father died, it starts with his father getting killed. Uh, and then by the end of the episode, they discuss just his work ethic and his interaction yeah. with teammates and what it's like to be a teammate with him and what level he is working on. And I've heard these stories before, like this isn't necessarily new information, but which is, but what was great about it, that's why I wanted to get to this part in the documentary. I was like, you guys have to touch on this. And they finally did. And I just thought it was great how they weaved that starting with the death of the father and doing the baseball and then coming back and they got into the teammate thing. And it was just so fascinating to hear it from him, but also from the teammates mouth as well. And it's something that I always find super fascinating by people who are at the top of their game in whatever they do, be it basketball, be it in other sports. You know, you could also relate like Kobe to that in sports. Obviously there's like Wayne Gretzky or there's even Tiger Woods. Look, look at Tiger Woods in, 
in other things, there's, you know, Steve Jobs and Apple, uh, you know, they're just on a different playing field than other people. And they have to live in the world, though, with all of the other people. So they're in at once trying to live up in this high plane, but somehow bring them up at least a little bit to their level so that they can somehow get to this greater this greater idea that they have in their mind, which most mortals don't dream about. I mean, the thing that got me and this will be there's going to be some spoilers in this because I'm not going to like this is all history. The thing that got me is during the Space Jam movie. So he's shooting Space Jam, but the only way he'll shoot Space Jam with Warner Brothers is if Warner Brothers sets up on their lot a complete professional sports facility for him with a full court basketball court, like weight room, all this stuff. He has Tim Grover like working on him and reconditioning him out of a baseball body into being ready to play basketball. And he just starts inviting everyone who's anyone in the NBA to come out and play with him on the Warner Brothers lot. And then you're like, they're showing what essentially looks like a shirts and skins pickup game with like him running around and like Reggie Miller and, you know, Charles Barkley and like all these people who are just playing. And you're like, that guy just shot a full day of filming. Then he would do that and then he would go lift. And you're like, that's a different level. And then they're watching you do this and you're like, wow, that's really cool. He's trying to get back in shape. Somebody said, yeah. And he was doing that because he wanted to see how everybody played. He's inviting the stars of all these teams to come and play with him on a basketball court just to know what their like strengths and weaknesses are. And then he's like, they're scouting reports on all those guys at the end of the thing. And I'm like, what? That, that, and that's what it shows. That he's just on a different level. And that's what I, I love the end of that episode seven though, where he is so worked up talking about this in the interview about the level that he wants to be at and his struggle to get other people around him to come up to that level that they end the episode with he's in near tears and he's like, I need a break. And that was the end of the episode. And it was just such a great build. They had an amazing buildup though, of the everybody talking about what it was like to be with him and how difficult it is to be his teammate. 90% of the time, there's a 10% though, where he's just this regular, really cool guy who will do anything for you. But then the other 90%, when you're on that court, you're in the practice, you're on the game he is just chewing you out and you're like, I'm not you. I can't do you. I mean, he gave Steve Kerr a black eye. Like, I mean, it's crazy. And that poor guy though, who was like from Yukon, Jordan's even talking about him. He would always just trash talk him the most because he was like the nicest guy. And he's like, I can never get under his skin, but he's like, but he also didn't have the drive and he had all the, he had a lot of talent and could have gone farther and done more if he was just able to get the drive. And that was the whole reason for him just berating people. I remember the one story came out when Jordan went to the wizards and came out of retirement to play for them. And they ended up getting the number one overall pick that season off season. They drafted this guy, Kwame Brown. 
the story pretty much goes is that Jordan ruined the kid because he would just talk down to him and trash talk him and say that you're worthless and you aren't any good and like you're going to be the biggest bust ever as the number one pick. But that was because that's how Jordan thought. And that's his idea is that I'm pushing you. You need to push back. You need to toughen up. If you can't handle me just trash talking you, how are you going to handle being in like the playoffs or even a bigger goal of going to the finals in that pressure cooker? And Kwame Brown was this guy who just did not react well to that. And it pretty much killed the guy's career because he then just was in his own head for the rest of his career and never really amounted to what his overall pick was. But you know, that's the Jordan thing that maybe he just was never cut out to be that. And that, but that's, what's so fascinating to me, like that dynamic, because that's such on a different plane to have that motivation and that mentality. It's rigorous and it's very hard to do. And it's, it's just very rare. And that is something that I was like super, super impressed by is the fact that he would, he would do things to get himself motivated for the games. And he would take like perceived slights. Like even if somebody, like someone said good game Mike to him and then he took that as him like after beating them and he thought that was like the biggest insult and he just used that to like crush them the next game and you're like that's amazing the flip side is how great is Phil Jackson as a coach because when you see Michael Jordan being like Michael Jordan was all just like fists and elbows and just be like just beating you into being like molding you like a like it like just watching like a um a blacksmith work you know just like pounding like heating the metal up and just slamming it into the form that needs to be like a sword like just sharpening and slamming and then phil jackson is basically like okay everybody's got different personalities. I'm going to make it work. He's like letting Dennis Rodman go on like a four day bender in Vegas in the middle of the season. Cause like he needs a vacation and Michael Jordan's like, if anybody needs a vacation, I need a vacation. And like, and Phil Jackson, just knowing enough to be like, look, Michael Jordan doesn't need like, you're never going to take a vacation. He needs to like go do mushrooms in the middle of Vegas with Carmen Electra and then come back. Well, I love, though, that he asked Jordan to come in to get Jordan's opinion. Well, how long do you need to go for? He's like, I'll go however long you let me go. He's like, well, how about 48 hours? Jordan goes, you ain't seeing him in 48 hours. You're never going to see him again. <laughs> I was like, yeah. And sure enough, I think it was like five days later. And then supposedly Jordan's bang. That was my favorite part of the whole story is that Carmen Alexa was in the room when Michael Jordan's banging on the door. And then he just says, let's go to Car- to Rodman. Dragging him out of bed. <laughs> It's like you have to go to practice, and then they show. But, and Rodman shows up in they like show pajamas. Up at practice, and Jordan's riding him. He's like, "Well, his body's here." You can't. It's wild, man. That's the thing. I I what that it makes me sad though. I watch my team, the Sixers, and then I'm just like, "You're not going to mount to anything." I just don't see the drive. Like there is just an it thing that people have or don't have, and in sports, a lot of times you can see it. I it's 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 really fascinating to see that and. Kobe Bryant to me was the only other guy I knew watching that was had that drive and mentality like that and kind of treated people the same way that Jordan did. He seemed a little bit more aware of it than Jordan did. Jordan seemed to have to have that throughout his whole life where Kobe can turn it on and off sort of not that Kobe whole life isn't also just a complete competitive game, but Kobe seemed a little more self-aware of it, but here and there. And it was great to hear actually Kobe talk about Jordan and how influential Jordan was 
it's Kobe's first All-Star game when he's 19. And you see the difference, you know, in in them. But then you also see how similar they were. And it's just, it's really, really just a very, very interesting documentary. Yeah, well, and one of the things I really enjoy how they're doing is flashing back between the present day, which is, quote unquote, 1998, which is the season they're following. But then they at different parts will scan back. And I also love their graphics that they use this, this timeline ticker. It goes from that, whatever year it is. And then scans back. And yeah, that was very slick. I like that. It just has a great way of placing you in time, but then how they decided to tell kind of each person's who's critical to this run, their backstory in, in different episodes. And you started off with Jordan and then you went to Pippin and then you went to Rodman and then you went to Phil. And I love the handoff from the Rodman to Phil thing was amazing because it was after that Vegas story and stuff. And then they kind of got into what kind of coach Phil was. And then that got, it was a great segue. And then they, but then they go back into Jordan and becoming the Nike guy and how that all went down and then other aspects throughout the first run. Like they get you through the full run of the first time too. And it's just crazy to see all that. And they just do a really great job of jumping back and forth and kind of separating the stories, but also combining like the different aspects of where they are currently and what happened to get to that point. And they did a really good job. I thought of setting up who all the characters were in a very, we're going to make this a story that you can all follow. And it, it does start with Jordan, but it starts with the villain, Jerry Krause. Essentially you get a quick intro to Jordan, but like you really start that first 20 minutes on like how Jerry Krause ripped this all apart. And, and like, you get that sort of foreshadowing is like, and he's the big, like he's the villain of this whole thing. But what, what's interesting for me is that I, I don't remember all this behind the scenes drama. Like I was, uh, I'm a little bit younger than you. So I remember Jordan. I love Jordan. I remember especially probably the last three more than the first three, but this whole drama about Jerry Krause and the whole coaching thing about that last season. Like I didn't know any of that. Like that was over my radar. So this is all new to me, which is even more interesting because I want to know what happens because Jerry Krause isn't actually interviewed for this show. They find some interview footage that they are able to splice in and him being, he's a, one of those uh, pretty honest guys that talks about how he is kind of thinking. So uh, it, it's just interesting to me though. I still actually don't know exactly how everything's going to fall or come together in the behind the scenes part. Obviously we know what happens on the court, but it'll be interesting for me to watch that. But again, they set that up so well to tee that up. If you're not intimately aware of the actual story, it's a great, they're telling it in a really great and interesting way. And like, Oh man, this guy, like what is his problem? And like, how's this all going to turn out? That kind of thing. And they did a great job that I think it was episode four, like whatever, right in the halfway point, whenever they talk about Phil Jackson, like they give Jerry Krause a redeeming moment because everybody is just like shitting on Jerry Krause and shitting on Jerry Krause and shitting on Jerry Krause. And then they're like, they had the coach and I'm blanking on his name at the moment. Wanted to Doug Collins wanted to build everything around Jordan and it was just going to be Jordan. It's just going to be Jordan. That's all. And then Jerry Krause is like, no, he had a uh, Wexler and then he wanted Phil Jackson and his coach. And you see him essentially put the people in place 
who are the right coaches to take the team to the next level. Because it would have been the Jordan and the Jordanettes show for the rest of his career. But putting people in there that were going to run an offense, it took everything to the next level. And then having Phil Jackson as the exact right coach to be able to be like, make Michael Jordan understand, listen, if your main thing is winning, you've done all the things. You have all the MVPs. You have the points. You have, like, scoring. But if you want to win championships, this is what we're going to do. we got to get everybody up so they, they can't just have the Pistons Jordan rules to shut you down and beat you up. We got to, like, everybody's got to come up. So we have all these threats. And that's the rise of Scottie Pippen and... Well, that's what's interesting, though, but they do give him all the credit for, like, the guy was smart. He did make these moves. He made the Scottie Pippen moves. He made this, that, like, when they showed that part of him deciding to go with Phil Jackson, yeah. I can't believe that happened. I never knew how Phil Jackson became the coach, and it's it's startling to me now. Like, could you imagine if something like that happened today with, like, a superstar team and just like a coach who is winning and took you to the Eastern conference finals. And then all of a sudden he gets fired mid season while you're still winning just because you wanted a new coach. But so they, they show it all though, that which is really great. Yeah. Like they, they do know what they're doing. They have a handle on the story and that's why I'm enjoying these sports documentaries where you really get a feel for the people who are putting it together. know what they're working with and the system that they're like, who, whatever you're following, they know this in and out. And it really shows on the screen when you're following us along. Oh, a hundred percent. And they really do do a great job of making, digging down to the personal stuff, the personal fights that were going on between and how that gets expressed on the court, how that gets expressed off the court. You know, it's, believe I read the statistic maybe I'm making this up I think I read it somewhere read it. that every year after a hard knock season on a team that the team like there's more people interested in that team like there's the, the fandom goes up and it's because once you get to see these people as people like because when you watch them going to see live sports just everybody's so much bigger than you are and I'm almost 6'1", and, like, going to a basketball game, I'm, like, shrimpy. Like, watching those guys walk around, it's like, they're giants. Or especially, like, an NFL game. Those guys standing on the sideline don't – they like, there's humans, and then there's, like, professional athletes. They, they just look like there's a whole different species. And it's just astounding. But then when you get to dig into these moments and you get to see – all this frustration and everything and it's like oh yeah i feel that and then when you're watching you're like oh i get it well that's what's impressive is what they get out of all these people and they have that's the other good thing they have a ton of people on this documentary that they interviewed for this so you're getting all kinds of perspectives but even the main players they do such a great job with the interviews and really get them to talk about even uncomfortable stories for them you know there's a couple with scotty pippen jordan has plenty of uncomfortable stories that they get him to talk about and he's open about it oh yeah which is just the best part about it because you really get them to tee up their mindset but they give you then the different perspectives too they don't stick you on just jordan's pov they give you the other points of view from the players from the coaches from uh executives in the league from journalists all that kind of stuff like there's so many different points of view 
that you get a fuller understanding of how everybody's seen it in different ways because there is no real one truth. You're just getting a lot of the different truths that kind of add up to the general idea. And I also thought there was another great episode was just showing, I, I have a affinity for these types of stories of showing the struggle that these superstars go through they are still human and they still go through it. And the pressure is immense on these people. And they talked about it in one of those episodes about be, what is it like to be Mike? He's like, yeah, he shot some commercial. that's like, it's not great to be honest with you. You don't want to be like Mike because the amount of pressure that he had to be this perfect person while also being this perfect basketball player. And then also have all these commitments to do. And it, it is, it's an overwhelming thing that I can't even comprehend how you manage something like that. I just appreciated them diving into those aspects of it too. And it isn't all just about the X's and O's of them on the court and what they did. It's also about the personalities and what it's like to live through that experience and this, this huge pressure cooker that they all were in uh, through both those runs. How much people want to tear people down? And I do have to admit, you know, when they talked about Jordan's father's death and they talked about the gambling that was going on I remember that happening and I was I was pretty young but like you just hear about him like going to Las Vegas or going to Atlantic City and gambling it was the middle of a series and all this stuff is coming up about his gambling and gambling and gambling and then you know you have the his father's death and then he like leaves to go play baseball I remember that story very quickly being this was like a shadow ban, essentially, where David Stern didn't want to come out and say that Michael Jordan was banned from playing basketball, but the gambling was out of control and it was like needed to be reined in. Well, they touched on that, but that's what's so great about it. They touch on it and they get them all to talk about it. I mean, they, they all right. deny it, but if... And especially watching this, it's like, no, there's no way that was like any type of mediocre band or like half band or like you have to step away from the game because it was never reported like that and then i can just imagine how it must feel to be like your dad passes like your your dad is essentially taken from you yeah it's not even like he just passed away he was killed <laughs> he was murdered right he was yeah like two kids just and kids like 18 19 year old kids but that's why it was so amazing about that. It, it, that that's why i think a part of that episode i just love so much it just was really humanizing for jordan and it just really helps you understand that these things aren't what they seem there's a lot going on behind the scenes in a human way not not this conspiratorial way but in this human way that people still have emotions these guys aren't bulletproof they don't just live in a bubble like they have their own lives and while their lives may seem mm -hmm. easy because they have a lot of money and they have some fame the fame is also a, uh it's a burden and a curse after you hit a certain point so they just do a really good job i think of also humanizing and, and bringing out those right. aspects of everybody's story so if you haven't had a chance go check out the last dance tony's like tony said it, it moves fast it's great uh so you can catch that on netflix right now that's where i'm watching it
All right. Well, that was a great different type of episode. It was nice to just kind of dive into all the different types of shows and films that we're watching. Let's wrap it up then. Uh, if you don't have anything else to add and we'll get into our spotlights of the week and mine's a little different. I wanted to spotlight the HomePod and I just got one recently and it's not so much about the HomePod. It's more about this being able to speak to a lady and where wait what <laughs> you know there's alexa there's google home siri you know so the idea though is that what i'm loving about it is being able to just kind of shout out hey siri or hey dingus just yeah. play x song so i really what it's more getting to okay. is what i've been listening to lately so because of this when I kind of just sit down to eat or if I'm sitting down at my table to just start working on some things, I can always have music on in the background and it sounds great, but I'm able to just kind of shout out anything. So I just really been getting into some classic rock uh, bands and singers that I, I have, I'm very much aware of and I've heard all their songs, but I don't know them enough intimately. And like a couple of examples would be like, cream or the guess who or the who or even the rolling stones i've never been a big rolling stones fan whoa i decided to just say you know hey dingus play the rolling stones and so when i'm having my lunch i'm get to hear the rolling stones for an hour and all of a sudden i'm getting enlightened to all these songs that i've heard throughout my life that i didn't know were the rolling stones and it's great and it's so much fun and it's just i guess it also has to do with just being able to have these streaming music services as well you can have just the world's music at your fingertips but to be also just to shout it out without having to like necessarily go search for something and pecking it out and trying to think about what you want to search for just something comes to your head you just shout it out and then it starts playing it it's a beautiful thing and i'm having a lot of fun with it i've been getting a lot of back uh, i've been getting a lot into bob dylan i've been making that a focus i just want to actually i've been going through bob dylan's uh whole back uh discography Oof, that's deep it is, and it's great, though, because it's all there, and it's just interesting to go through and just try to actually get a better feel for it because some of my favorite bands growing up were Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, and I know those bands really, really well, and I know all their songs, and I know their deep mm-hmm. albums and all that kind of stuff. So I'm trying to do that with the other classic bands and singers that of that era that are just iconic, but I haven't ever really given enough time and uh, attention to before. Nice. So it's a bit of a roundabout spotlight from going from one piece of like material thing into the esoteric idea of cool music and learning music and stuff like that. Yeah. And sticking with the music then, um, I want to highlight something that I randomly came across on the Internet. Um, It's a YouTube channel called Chilled Cow. And this has become pretty much what I write to now. They do... Um, what's called lo-fi hip-hop beats and yeah and it streams 24 7 um there's beats to relax study to and beats to sleep chill to and they it's i don't know that they're even playing full songs it's just it's very much in this like lo-fi groove that as you like very little lyrics, mostly just the beats. And um, yeah, it's what I turn on and I put the headphones on so that I can't hear what else is going on in the house. Cause there's always like people moving around and 
you know, you know, you got uh, my daughter making noise, and you know, my sister-in-law making noise, and my wife making noise, and then like it's able to like focus me in. And I don't normally write with a ton of music, but this is a good background sort of thing. So it's Chilled Cow on YouTube, and then um, the one I do is the Lo-Fi Hip Hop Beats to Relax Study to, and it just is great to like zone out to and and like get you in your place yeah i feel like i was just reading about this and i don't know if it's exactly the one you're talking about but these lo-fi hip-hop beats is something that i just recently came across too and i i don't remember exactly where i read about it but i was like okay yeah actually i could get into this and this does have that kind of mood and mentality that i usually like for my music i do listen to music almost all the time when I'm writing, specifically if I'm writing my scripts or working on outlines, like I need to be in a mood and I need the music help set that tone for me. So and well, I'm always saving music when I, and I then have like a playlist folder that I just call writing music. And then when I get into a new story, I'll then try to find the specific songs that kind of fit into that tone and atmosphere that I want to set and get my mind into. So, but yeah, I, I've been, I heard about that somewhere and I've also been getting into a little bit more of that type of music where reading just different articles about work from home. I'm seeing a lot of playlists put out there too. And a lot of it is that kind of low range background music where it's these easy chill beats that are happening, which is so that it's this, because they show also that if you, there's supposedly a bunch of studies. If you listen to music while you're working, you're actually more productive. And I guess it has that, white noise kind of uh, effect on you where you're able to focus better when you have instead of just working in silence. So anyway, I've been learning a few, finding a few more good playlists lately that have this very interesting new uh, chill uh, oh, tone that. to them. So it's, it's, it's fun. Yeah. I don't know how I discovered it, but it just is something that I started listening to and there's a ton of different playlists on it. And a lot of them are like live streaming radios that just, keep going it's awesome there it is cool all right well uh we'll definitely put that in the show notes for anybody who likes to listen to music while they're writing or doing their chores around their house so all right tony uh fun good episode uh it's nice to change it up a little bit and uh if there's nothing else uh where can everybody reach you at reach me on all the socials at anthony hudax on the insta the twitter the facebook the whatever just type it in. You'll find me. All of them. There it is. Okay, and you can reach me at Stravs on Twitter. Tony, good talking. I'll check you next time. Next time. All right. Later.